Production support for Soundbites is made possible by listeners and by Coffee by Design, growing a business committed to community and sustainability locally and worldwide. Coffeebydesign.com. Welcome to Soundbites, true stories told by local Mainers and nationally recognized storytellers. The themes are always changing, and the hosts are from all over the nation, but when you hear the name Soundbites, you're in for a unique storytelling experience. Soundbites is brought to you by Frontier Studios and made possible by the generous contributions of Allagash Brewing Company, Frontier, The Press Hotel, Toad Co., and by the listeners of Maine Public Radio. This week's stories were told live at Frontier in Brunswick, where the event's dedicated theme was schooled. Here's today's host, Chicago-based storyteller and host of Shannon Kaysen's homemade stories, Mr. Shannon Kaysen. Guys, I want you to give a warm applause to our next storyteller, Ethan Minton. So I have been fascinated with planes and flying for as long as I can remember. I think I was about four the first time my dad took my brothers and me, and we parked at the end of the runway at the Portland International Jetport. <laughs> I believe even then there were flights to Canada. And we would watch the planes land and take off, and it was the biggest thrill. And every time we were anywhere near the airport, I would insist, we've got to go. We've got to watch the planes. And he would take me, and we'd watch the planes. And I couldn't wait for my first flight. And it was probably two or three years later, and the excitement of actually boarding a plane. And, and that was back when, you know, the cockpit door was not only open, but the captain would greet you. And remember the wings? The little wings that you got... They're in a box somewhere. I'll never find them. And then you, you get into that seat, and, and there's something about the feeling of the seat just thrusting you forward as the ground, you watch the ground, everything go quickly by, and then that rush of lifting up into the air and kind of that good, queasy feeling in your stomach. And, and I, I was convinced that I was going to be a pilot. I was going to go to flight school. I was going to learn to fly. Maybe it would be in the Air Force. Life had other plans for me. Um, I did, however, get a chance to fly a plane a couple of times. Many years later, I was visiting my brother and his Navy buddy, Rob, as a pilot, and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll take you up in my Cessna. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. So we head out to this little airport, and we pop on the, the headphones, and he starts telling me what to communicate to the tower, and, I, you know... I, I'd been in radio for a bunch of years at the time and was really amazed with the fact that I couldn't speak into this microphone. I couldn't repeat anything he was saying. I did not, I did not understand the language. So he took care of all of the pre-check business with the, with the tower and he showed me, you know, how you're going to use the left pedal and the right pedal and where we're going to go. And he gave me directions to get out onto the runway and he said, okay, so we're going to, uh, you're going to, you know, you know, put the throttle forward. We're going to get up to 65 knots. You're going to pull back and you're going to climb up to 1500 feet, you know, and you're going to go at this heading. And then I get up to 1500 feet and he said, okay, so now you're going to uh, uh, go over to the Northwest and you're going to climb up to 3000 feet. And we finally get there and I level off. And he looked at me and he said, you know, it's a good idea every once in a while to look out the windshield for other planes. <laughs> and, I th and I thought, is that a reflection on me as the pilot? I, 
I somehow find it really disconcerting that we've been in the air for five minutes and you're just now telling me to look out the windshield of the plane. And, and, and what I discovered was that while I love flying, actually flying a plane is really kind of stressful. It wasn't a lot of enjoyment in it. It wasn't the same thrill of knowing that there was a qualified pilot. I mean, he was sitting next to me, but he didn't think to tell me to look out the windshield. And that's a really, really important part. I mean, looking out the windshield, that's, that's kind of like what's coming at you. That's what, what's in your future, whereas if you're enjoying a ride, you're looking out and just kind of watching the world go by. So a couple of years later, um, I had just met my now wife, Amy, been dating for a few months, and I was planning this big trip to Australia to see family, and it would be far and away the longest plane flight I ever took. And she said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to come with you. I'd like to join you. And I, I, w I was thrilled. I, I mean, you know, what's better than international travel to test a new relationship? <laughs> So we book our flights and we have one of those crazy itineraries where, you know, we got like two or three hours of sleep. We are up at 3.30. The flight flew, uh, was out of Portland at 5.30. Stop in Chicago. We're in San Francisco by 11 a.m. Had the day. So we thought, well, the flight's not till 11 tonight. Why don't we spend some time in San Francisco? We played tourists. We had a great time. Arrived at the airport. Got ourselves all checked in. We were exhausted. And I remember virtually nothing about being in that airport, except for uh, one, one thing really stands out. We're, we're getting ready to board, and, 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 I, and I look over as we're walking toward the gate, and there are these two young men completely passed out on the ground. And really, the only way to get to the gate is we, we, you know, we have to kind of step over them. And, and I'm thinking, there, there is no way those two guys are going to make it on that flight. I, I was wrong. Um, a few minutes later, we're in our seat, and I look across the aisle, and, and there are those two guys. And there's the pilot having a little conversation with those two guys. And I don't think it was to give them wings. <laughs> I'm quite certain it was making sure that they were going to behave themselves on the flight, and apparently he got the answer that he was looking for. So I sat back in my chair and did the thing I love to do more than anything else on a flight, which is to put on the headphones turn the channel to the cockpit conversation. Have you done this? Yeah, you get to hear all of the communication between the flight crews and the tower, the tower and our pilot, the pilot of flight 863 San Francisco to Sydney. It's exciting stuff. You can follow along with when you're going to push back and when you're going to taxi. And then there we are, flight 863. We're at the end of the runway, and I'm ready for the takeoff. You can feel the engine going forward. It's a 747, so it takes a long time to get that thing going. But eventually it does, and we've got the speed, and we're taking off. And, and, it, and there's just this exhilarating feeling that I always get when you're in the air. Well, there are, I'm sure, a whole bunch of things that will take the joy out of flying. <laughs> there are two that I know of for certain. One is a headline that reads... Pilot inexperience blamed for flight 863's near miss with mountain outside of San Francisco. The other is looking out your window and seeing flames surrounding the wing of the airplane. Now, flight 863 that almost crashed into a mountain outside of San Francisco, that flight at 863, that was 24 hours after our flight 863. The one 
with the flames circling around the wing outside of your aircraft. Yes, we're in the air for about two to three minutes. I look to my right, and there are flames. And it doesn't take your brain long to realize that when the wing of your plane is on fire, you're going you're to die. And that is exactly what I felt, and I was immediately paralyzed. I, I, I felt fear like I had never felt before. I remember I'm gripping the armrest, and I'm pinned back in my seat, and my heart is going a million miles an hour, and I'm, it's that thought of, wait a minute, this, this is the stuff that happens to other people. This is, this happened to me. We are going to die. And you wonder how you'll react in situations like that. Can you be heroic? And I've told this story once or twice, and friends have said to me, well, it's kind of hard to be heroic when the wing of your plane, there's flames all around. That's outside. There's not really anything you can do. And while I appreciate them letting me off the hook, it also made me think, well, what if the emergency was inside the plane? What would I do? Would I be the one to say, let's roll? Would I at least be one to follow the person who said, let's roll? It certainly didn't feel like it at that point. Cockpit conversation comes on, woman's voice. I think it was the flight attendant. What the hell was that? Pilot, I'll get back to you. Still pinned to the back of my seat. I can't move. I am paralyzed. Next thing I know, the pilot is back in the cabin. And, you know, seeing the pilot twice in 20 minutes in the cabin of an airplane is not the thing that you'd necessarily want on a flight. And he's huddling with the flight crew. And they're chatting. And I, I'm freaking out. I mean, it's that sense of sheer terror, like, oh, my God, we are going to die. He heads back to the cockpit. And all of a sudden, this lilting voice comes over the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen... On our 14-hour and 20-minute flight to Sydney, we'll be seeing men in black, and there's something about Mary. And in two hours, we'll serve you a delicious entree, and then you'll have a nice day. And I'm like, there's the flames outside the window. We're not going to Sydney. No. Next voice is over the intercom, and I hear a flight attendant say, the sparks that you saw are perfectly normal when an engine blows. <laughs> Immediately followed by the pilot who said, there were no sparks. And I'm like, you're damn right, there were flames. <laughs> what we had is what you call a major engine stall. And the magic words we've all been waiting for. We are in no danger. And I took what I thought was the first breath I had had in an hour. Probably took five or six minutes to this whole thing. And then he explains to us, we're going to fly around uh, San Francisco Bay. We're going to dump all of the fuel to get down to landing weight. And we should have you back at the gate in 45 minutes. The environmental implications aside, <laughs> we did manage to land back at the gate in 45 minutes without incident, assuming you don't consider, you know, four fire trucks, three ambulances, and nine police cars an incident. We are now exhausted, and we get off the plane, and we're given instructions to head down 
uh, to, the, uh, to the desk so that we can get instructions on where we'll be spending the night and when our flight might be leaving. And uh, as we're walking across the terminal, we look over and there are the two guys, the two guys who had been passed out, the two guys who had had the conversation with the captain and there are a couple of other passengers trying without success to tell them what had happened and they could not, they would not believe that we had actually taken off. I still love planes. I love the idea of flight. I, I get a thrill out of watching planes. In fact, when I time it and I'm coming down 295 uh, across the Four River and I can have a plane pass in front of the car, there's nothing more exciting. I put the windows down so I can hear the jet engine coming back at me. I love that. But the thrill of being on a plane, being propelled forward, being lifted into the sky, Man, that thrill was extinguished the minute the flames were outside my window. Oh, one more thing. Just in case you wondered about the two drunk guys, whether they made it to Sydney. They weren't on our flight. We get back on another flight, no sign of them. About six or seven days later, Amy and I were at the aquarium in Sydney. Sydney, a city of what, four, five, six million people? And who do we see? Yep, those two guys, they were sober. They didn't remember us, certainly. They did remember that they had been on a plane a first time, but still had no idea that we had ever taken off and nearly died. Lucky them. Thank you. Ethan Minton grew up in Maine and after spending a few years in the Southwest, returned home and began a 20-year career in broadcasting. Five years ago, he turned to his lifelong passion for ending hunger into a profession, first working with Hunger Prevention Program and most recently joining the development team at the Good Shepherd Food Bank. Much of his time is spent driving his daughter Sally's carpool to Maine State Ballet where he also volunteers. <laughs> Occasionally you'll even find him on stage as a party parent at the Nutcracker. One more time, Ethan Mint. If you want to know more about today's storyteller, well, you're in luck. Let's join our host backstage, now in conversation with today's teller. What is your connection to Maine? Well, I've been in Maine most of my life, although if you're not born here, you're not from Maine. But my, par my parents moved here when I was two. I spent some time away, uh, missed it. Maine is home, and I've uh, been back for 20 years and so glad I came back home. Ethan, what got you into storytelling? Well, I was in radio for about 20 years, and I never had more than 60, 90 seconds if I was lucky to tell a story. And I thought, maybe, just maybe, I've got a little more to say. Tonight, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> How do you prepare for being on stage? Do you have a process? Well, they're, they're, despite having um, been on stage for radio a bunch of times, uh, first time doing something like this, the nervousness has never fully gone away, which I think is a good thing. Um, but what I try and remember is that, generally speaking, and particularly for a show like this, people are here to have fun, 
and they really want you to succeed. And I hope to be able to feed off of that. All right. Tell us some nugget or detail from your story that didn't make it into the story. It didn't make it into the final cut. Any of those? And what I wasn't able to work in is that if, in fact, the plane I mentioned had crashed, it would have been the largest plane crash in aviation history in the U.S. 307 people would have died. And it literally changed the way United Airlines trains thousands of pilots. That's for another time. Soundbites is brought to you by Frontier Studios and made possible by the generous contributions of Allagash Brewing Company, Frontier, The Press Hotel, Toad & Co., and by the listeners of Maine Public Radio. Special thanks also to GWI and Downey's Pension Services. More information about Soundbites, including how to attend a live storytelling event, can be found online at soundbitesme.org. And of course, you can always hear more stories at mainepublic.org. Thanks for listening.